Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So through the Old Testament, prophets used the picture of a river as a powerful expression of riches, provision, and peace. And some of these are uh, Isaiah 48, verse 18, where it says, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Zechariah 14, verse 8, And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, and half of them towards the western sea, in both summer and winter it shall occur. In Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 9, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out the right side. And when the man went out to the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. And again he measured 1,000 and brought me again to the waters, and the water came up to my knees. And as it goes on so forth, and it keeps getting dark, uh, deeper and deeper as it goes. And so, or it says expressed by the psalmist in Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5, where it says, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. So one of the gladdest things on earth is water. There is nothing in all the world so precious to the eye and the imagination of the inhabitant of a dry, burning, and thirsty east as the plentiful supply of bright, pure, and living water. And so this idea of the river was to let us know that in heaven there shall be no want of anything that can make the saints happy. So clear as crystal, God's provision in the New Jerusalem is described with pure, absolutely unpolluted waters. Its waters are literal waters of a nature and quality answering to that of the golden city to which they belong. Men on earth never knew such waters, as men on earth never knew such a city, but the city is a sublime reality. So this river of provision comes right from God's throne. Because it comes from God, it cannot be anything other than pure and abundant. So Ezekiel saw a glorious river in Ezekiel chapter 47 flow down from the temple in Jerusalem and into the sea. But that river belongs to the millennial earth. It is perhaps the final preview of this heavenly river. This is a better river with better trees. All right, verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the Bible begins with the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 through 24 which man was not allowed to eat from the from after the sin uh, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now we see the tree of life again at the end. So it's a little hard to picture this heavenly landscaping. John may be describing a large street with a river flowing down the middle and a large tree or a series of trees that grows with roots on either side of the river. And so some will see it as a visual picture presented is that the river of life flows down through the middle of the city and the tree is large enough to span the river so that the river is in the midst of the street and the tree is on both sides of the river. Others will see that the word tree is a collective reference 
speaks of rows of trees that stand on either side of the river. And uh, they'll say the picture presented to the mind's eye would appear to be that of a wide street with a river flowing down the center, like some of the broader uh, canals of Holland, with trees growing on either side, all of them of the same kind, and all called the tree of life. I do not know how we can make a figure out in any other way. So seeing the tree of life again points to a restoration of all things. Now at last, almost at the end of the great drama of the Bible, man may return and legitimately enjoy the blessing which he was banished for illegitimately desiring. So from all indications, this is going to describe the world of the new heaven and the new earth, yet we are given a time indicator. Apparently, heaven will still mark time, but it is not subject to it in the same way that we are on this side of eternity, right? Each tree yielding its fruit every month. So some people will wonder if we will eat in heaven. The best answer is that we can eat, but we will not have to. In his resurrection body, Jesus obviously enjoyed food in Luke 24, verse 41 through 43. Let's look at that, where it says, But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. In John 21, verse 12 through 14, where Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So angels ate with Abraham in Genesis 18, verses 6 through 8, where it says, So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and a good calf, gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So the great heavenly reunion between Jesus and his people is described as the marriage supper in Revelation 19 verse 9 where it says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So even though man fell by what he ate, God will still allow us to eat in heaven. <laughs> And so like the golden table of showbread, which ever stood in the ancient tabernacle and temple for the priest to eat, so the tree of life stands in all the golden streets of the new Jerusalem with its monthly fruit for the immortal king priest of heaven. So why do the nations need healing? Right, The leaves of the tree for, for, were for the healing of the nations. In the ancient Greek language, the word for healing can also mean health giving. And this may be the sense here. And the word for healing is therapian from which the English word therapeutic is derived, almost directly transliterated from the Greek. Rather than meaning healing, it should be understood as health-giving, as the word in its root meaning has the idea of serving or ministering. So, street, river, tree, fruit, and leaves. Are these pictures of heaven literal or symbolic? It may be that you can't describe another dimension like heaven without using symbols, but they are symbols connected to the reality. What John saw may or may not be exactly like the river on earth, but when we see it, we will also say that looks like a river. So even though this great chapter of the Bible tells us of heaven, we should think deeply about it and take in now what we can. 
We do not suppose that a man is shooting at a target if he does not look that way, nor can we imagine that a man's ambition is fixed on heaven if he has no heavenward thoughts or aspirations. Verses 3-5 through And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So in heaven, the curse is gone. Since the fall, man and creation have lived with the effect of the curse described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 through 19. Sorrow and pain in childbirth for women, friction between the sexes, the necessity of hard and often futile work for man's sustenance, and most of all, death. So these aspects of the curse will even be present during the millennium, though they will be greatly mitigated by the perfect rule of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 65 verse 20 shows us that it's still possible for a sinner to be accursed in the millennial earth, but in the new heaven and new earth, that is done away with forever. Instead of the curse, the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And that's quite an exchange. So... The throne of God and of the Lamb. So henceforth, eternal praises to his name. The throne of God is the throne of the Lamb. It is a throne of righteousness, but no less a throne of grace. There, on the throne of the Almighty, mercy reigns. According to the merit of the sacrifice and the virtue of the atonement, all the statutes and decrees of the kingdom of heaven are issued. The altar and the throne have become identical. And so from that throne, no fiery bolt can ever again be hurled against the believer. For it is the throne of the Lamb as well as the throne of God. So heaven will be a place of work and service for God's people. However, this is a picture of pure blessedness of service rather than arduous, curse-stained toil. So heaven is not a place of indolent leisure, but a place where service is done centering on God. So heaven will be a place where God's people see his face, a place of intimate face-to-face fellowship with God. We can't even imagine. So Moses was denied the privilege of seeing God face-to-face in Exodus 33, verse 20 through 23. But everyone in heaven shall see his face. And so because of Jesus, we can know something of the face of God right now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yet Paul also anticipated a greater fulfillment of seeing the face of God in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, where it says, For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. So in that day, there will be nothing that obscures our vision of Jesus. We will see Jesus clearly because sin is done away with, because care and worry are gone, and because idols are done away with. And this will be the greatest glory of heaven, to know God, to know Jesus more intimately and wonderfully than we could ever do on earth. And this is the chief blessing of heaven, the cream of heaven, the heaven of heaven, that the saints shall there see Jesus. And so his name shall be on their forehead. So heaven will be a place where God's people will forever be identified with their God. And there will never be a doubt that they belong to him. And heaven will be a place where the darkness of this age will be forever gone. And the light is not artificial, even from the sun. God himself is the light. And heaven will be a place where God's people enjoy an eternal reign. In contrast to the limited duration of the millennium, it will never end. So as the Bible opens... With the story of paradise lost, so here it closes with the story of paradise regained. 
So we see the return of paradise in the ideas of a river, the tree of life, the revocation of the curse, um, intimacy restored, and reigning resumed. It is a perfect consummation, right? No more curse is a perfect restoration. Throne in their midst is perfect administration. The servant shall serve perfect subordination, shall see his face perfect transformation. Name on the foreheads, perfect identification. God is the light, perfect illumination, reigning forever, perfect exaltation. Verse 6 and 7. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So in these last few verses of the book of Revelation, we hear parting words from a variety of persons. It isn't always easy to know who is speaking, but the themes make sense no matter who speaks. Verification, invitation, and warning. So the angel that showed John all this reminds John that it isn't too good to be true. John is assured that it is in fact faithful and true. And as John reminds us of the suddenness of these events, Jesus himself breaks in with a reminder to all that he is coming quickly. And why does it seem that it has been so, so, so long, right? Was Jesus wrong here? The word quickly in the ancient Greek isn't exactly the same as our word for quickly, right? The word quickly might with accurate, uh, accuracy be rendered suddenly, not it's about to happen soon. It'll happen fast when it does happen. So still, the early church expected Jesus' return soon. Uh, were they just wrong, or did Jesus mislead them? Not at all. They were not wrong, and they were not misled by Jesus. God wants to keep all generations expectant, watching, and ready for his return. So we are not rushing towards a distant brink of the consummation of all things. We are running parallel along the edge of that brink, and have been since the time of the apostles. Thus, the time has always been at hand. The tension of imminence is endemic to that span of redemptive history lying between the cross and the parousia. And so this blessing reminds us that prophecy gives us a word to keep. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, not merely material for interesting discussions and debates. The main intent of prophecy is to lead us to trust and obey God and apply his truth to the way we live. Verse 8 and 9. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard I saw and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So as before, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, John was so overwhelmed and bowed before an angel in worship. In the same way, the angel reminded John that only God is to be worshipped, and that they were both players on the same team, along with all who keep the words of this book. So no created being should ever be worshipped. This is in contrast with Jesus, who receives the worship of angels in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6, but when he brings... But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of men, Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, where the leper came and worshipped him. Chapter 14, verse 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him. And John chapter 9, verse 38, then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So if it is wrong to worship this glorious heavenly messenger in and through whom came forth the very voice of Jesus... How can it be right to worship and pray to the Virgin Mary, to whom is assigned no such dignity or office? 
The impulse and intention may be devout and good, but it is a great mistake, certainly not biblical. So it is striking that even someone who had received all these visions may go astray. Supernatural visions and revelations do not mean that someone is correct in their doctrine, teaching, or practice. Verse 10 and 11, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So because the time is at hand, and history now runs parallel to the brink of the consummation of all things, this book isn't sealed. This is in contrast to the Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. Men seal the book of Revelation in defiance of God's command. So the thought here is probably, since Jesus is coming so suddenly, there won't be time for change. There will be no time for last-minute repentance, but there is time now. If what you have read in Revelation has not changed you, there isn't much hope. It is the hopelessness of the final state of the wicked which is here pictured. The states of both the evil and the good are now fixed forever. and There is no word here about a second chance hereafter. So if the warnings of this book are not sufficient, there is no more that God has to say. Verse 12 and 13. And behold... I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So we can never miss the note of urgency and warning in all that Jesus tells us about his coming. His message is always to be ready. In Matthew 24, verse 44, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So if Jesus will, will give to everyone according to his work, does that mean that we are saved by our works? No, but it does show that living faith will have works with it. In James 2 verse 20, but oh, you know, but do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Titus chapter 3 verse 8, and this is a faithful saying that these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So it is the quality of a man's life which provides the ultimate indication of what he really believes. And as an added incentive for us to do and be what is right, being ready for Jesus' return, he reminds us just who he is. If we really know and understand who Jesus is, we will have no trouble in being ready for his return. The term Alpha and Omega is applied to God in chapter 1 verse 8 and chapter 21 verse 6 and here alone to Christ, which is crowning proof in the book of Christ's deity. The title, the first and the last, is also irrefutable proof that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord, I the Lord am the first, and with the last I am he in Isaiah 41 verse 4, verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to this tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So doing his commandments does not earn us eternal life, but it is evidence that we have been granted eternal life. Besides, there is an inherent blessing in doing his commandments, because they are good and right for us. So regarding the phrase, those who do his commandments, some translations have those who have washed their robes instead. The difference is between two ancient Greek words, of which I cannot pronounce either one. So one is wash their robes, and the other one is do his commandments. And the characters behind this are like 20 or 30 
characters long. And so this is a good example of how a copyist error can cloud a text in rather minor ways without affecting the essential meaning of the passage. Even allowing for the small percentage of disputed text, we can trust our Bibles. So what about those on the outside? We shouldn't think that outside the walls of heaven are multitudes will... Th- Uh, are going to throng longing to get in. This verse does not intend to teach that in the eternal state, all manner of wicked men will be living just outside the heavenly city. It simply describes the future with the imagery of the present. So why does it say that all dogs will be outside? Is this a uh, refuting of the idea of a heaven for pet dogs? No, what is meant here is not literal dogs, but the morally impure. Dogs in the oriental cities are scavengers and excite unspeakable contempt. In Matthew 7, verse 6, where it says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before the swine. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So with these solemn words, Jesus authenticates the entire book. Much of the book of Revelation is either fantastic or seems too good to be true, but it's all true. And so the book of Revelation is written to the churches. This book is not a private affair, knowable by only an elite. It is for all believers. So it's also worth noting that this is the first reference to the church since the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And so the root and offspring of David is a precious messianic title from Isaiah 11 verse 1 where it says there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. So it shows that Jesus is both the creator of King David and his descendant. Jesus spoke to the same idea in Matthew 22 verse 41 through 46 where it says while the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them saying what do you think about the Christ whose son is he they said to him the son of David he said to them how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool if David then calls him Lord how is he his son and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day on did anyone dare ask question him anymore. <laughs> uh, so this is a bright morning star is another messianic title from the Old Testament from Numbers 24 verse 17 where it says, I see him but not now, I behold him but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. And the New Testament in Revelation 2 verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. And just as the morning star generally held to be the planet Venus shines and welcomes the new day, then so does Jesus. Verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirst come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. What's the cost of the water of life? Free. And so, is this an invitation to Jesus asking him to return, or is it an invitation to those with a spiritual thirst to come to Jesus? Either sense is certainly true here. So, who can come? Him who hears can come to Jesus, but they can't come unless they hear. Him who thirsts can come to Jesus, but they can't come unless they feel their thirst. Whoever desires can come, but they can't come unless God works in their heart to desire him. So how do you know if God has worked in your heart? Go through a little checklist. Have you heard? Are you thirsty for God in eternal life? Do you want him? Then come. And so this is an open invitation to receive salvation from Jesus. 
He will not exclude anyone who comes to him. An invitation is both an opportunity and a responsibility. If we decline an invitation, then we only have ourselves to blame. A similar invitation is extended in Isaiah 55 verse 1, which says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the invitation to come is an urgent command. For the day will arrive when it's too late to come. So now is the day of grace. The hour of judgment is impending. And so this is an invitation so great that we can glory in it. Anyone who desires salvation in Jesus Christ can come to him and take the water of life freely, without cost. So one might say, I don't understand all the Christian doctrine and theology. Come anyway, because it doesn't say whoever understands, let him take the water of life freely. One might say, I can't repent the way I should. My heart is hard and I can't even weep over my sins or feel bad over them as I should. Well, come anyway, because it doesn't say whoever feels, let him take the water of life freely. And one might say, I don't know if I can live the Christian life the way I should. Well, come anyway, because it doesn't say whoever can, let him take the water of life freely. And one might say, I don't know if I'm worthy to live the Christian life. Well, come on and come anyway, because it doesn't say whoever is worthy, let him take the water of life freely. Right, But mark the sinner, it says, whosoever. And what a big word that is, whosoever. There is no standard height here. It is of any height and any size. Little sinners, big sinners, black sinners, fair sinners, sinners double-dyed, old sinners, aggravated sinners, sinners who have committed every crime in the whole catalog, whosoever. And it's really this simple. Do you desire Jesus and his salvation? Then come. Can you say, now, Lord, I desire to be saved. Give me a new heart. I desire to give up my sins. I desire to be a Christian. I desire to believe and desire to obey. But I have no strength to do this. I have the desire. Just give me that power. If this is your desire, then you are freely invited to come. If you are only willing, there is no barrier between you and Jesus except your own stubborn will. So when you desire, when you come, then you must take. All of this world's religion can be summed up in the idea that you must bring something to give unto the gods out there. The essence of Christianity is summed up in the idea that God invites us to take the water of life freely. It's free. You can't bring anything to save or justify or commend yourself before God. But you can take the salvation that he freely offers. So it is fitting that this great invitation closes the book of Revelation in the Bible. All the prophets of the Bible, all the apostles of the Bible, all the threatenings of the Bible, all the promises of the Bible gather themselves up and focus themselves into this one burning ray. Come to Jesus, come and take the water of life freely. Verse 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So this is another section at the end of the book of Revelation where it's difficult to tell exactly who spoke. In most red-letter editions, these words are in black, indicating that the translators believe that these were not the words of Jesus. But there may be good reason to believe Jesus gave this warning. And since we can rely on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and onward, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And so... If anyone adds, if anyone takes away. So this means that there is a high price to pay for tampering with the book of Revelation specifically and the scriptures in general. 
And what a solemn warning this is to critics who have tampered with this book and other portions of Scripture in arrogant self-confidence that they are equipped intellectually and spiritually to determine what is true and what is not true in the Word of God. So this solemn promise also implies that the book of Revelation can be understood. So why would God assign such a strong rebuke for the addition to or the subtraction from a book that just painted big ideas and wild pictures or if no one could really understand the book anyway? Right? It made it for, so that we can understand these things. Verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things say, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So to the very end, the book of Revelation emphasizes readiness and watchfulness. If we miss this practical lesson from the book of Revelation, the lesson of readiness, then we miss the essential message of the book. If the statement, I'm coming quickly, was not enough, Jesus puts emphasis on both sides, surely before and amen after. So even so, come Lord Jesus. So with this phrase, John used an idea related to an Aramaic expression that was well known in the ancient church, Maranatha. So the book of Revelation concerns many prophetic events, but the book closes with John's longing for the return of Jesus for his people. He wants the rapture of the church. And so if the whole congregation groans and travails together in pain for the manifestation of the sons of God, how much more those sons of God themselves. And so the book and the Bible ends with a word of grace and grace for all. Paul also used this phrase as a final word in some of his letters in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 23 where he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, The grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 28, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, Paul even indicated that his, this signature, no doubt written with his own hand, was a mark that the letter was genuinely from him. So it is a good word for the close of this marvelous picture of God's gracious provision for his people in earth and heaven. So whatever you may miss, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be always with you. And whatsoever points you or any of us may fail, may we never come short of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the last verse of the Old Testament contains a cursed. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 6, Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Fittingly, the last words of the New Testament speak of grace, because grace describes God's dealing with man on the basis of the new covenant. Amen.